Welcome to The Changeable, my collection of conversations about the big ideas shaping our future. In a world where digital tools are the foundation for many businesses, data is the currency that makes the modern world go round. It's what makes AI and machine learning function and underpins many of the systems we rely on every day, from how the government operates to ordering a pizza. Today, my guest is Ian Opperman. Among many hats he wears, he's Chief Data Scientist for the New South Wales Government in Sydney, Australia. Ian, welcome. Yeah, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, but I want to get into the topic of data, um, but start with you. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about your background? How did you end up as a data scientist and what did the path look like for you and where did that start for you? Uh, thanks, thanks, Ray. Uh, great, great to be here. Uh, really great to have grateful to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about um, some data stuff. Uh, I didn't start out, of course, as a chief data scientist uh, or, in fact, a data scientist at all. I did a, uh, an engineering degree and went out to work for OTC, which was, at the time, the Overseas Telecommunications Corporation in Australia. Yeah. And I started working on fax machines. And I thought, my goodness, this is boring. I really couldn't believe it. All my friends went managed to get into the R&D section of OTC. And I was working on storing forward fax, which was the big step up from having needing someone to be at either end of the fax machine to send this fax. And it was really, really dull. So I thought, not for me, went back to university, did a PhD in mobile communications, went off to Finland, worked with Nokia, both the handset business, the base station business, discovered that moving data was actually really exciting, this new thing called mobile communications. I was working on 3G at that point. And then over time, realized increasingly that the stuff that we were doing, which used to be based on physics, was actually much, much too complex for the physics and the models we had. So eventually I joined Nokia, the networks business, and got put in charge of the radio planning access optimization business for, for all the tools that Nokia made for their base stations. And as I said, we, we used to plan networks by calculating things in physics and then deploying and then optimizing. We realized that by the time 3G came along, that it was so complex and the terrains were so complex that what we do is we deploy, then we suck all the data in, and then we'd optimize the data and we'd redeploy, and we just repeat that process. So there was still a little bit of physics, but increasingly it was, it was data-driven. Came back to Australia from Finland after eight years, worked for CSIRO, and had a team who had the Wi-Fi team, which was pretty good. Had the robotics team had uh, groups who were doing environmental sensing, and increasingly everything they were doing was capturing the data from the physical world, processing the data in the virtual world and sometimes putting it back into the physical world as a as a move left, move right, or as a, as a, as a dig hole here type thing. And a lot of the time it just stayed in the world of data and I thought, this is really fascinating. And then finally came across New South Wales government who was starting the Data Analytics Centre and that was all about sharing and using data and I thought, I can bring some really cool stuff I've learned from CSR, some really practical stuff I've learned from Nokia and have been on a journey with New South Wales as a chief data scientist for the last eight and a half years. And we've done some, some really amazing stuff, but mostly the goal has been change the way people think about data, change the way people think about wicked, complex problems and bring data and smarts together to the form of AI and algorithms in order to try and better understand, better predict, and in some cases explore different possible scenarios what the world might look like. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, if I look at it, coming from my perspective um, and background 
as a designer and I guess more of a digital type thinker, data is the currency, right? Like, and, and I think a lot of people maybe miss that part of the memo that the data is the thing that is what is you know being routed between people in their messages. It what it's one it's what underpins our transactions and. No matter what it is, those thing that data is there, um, and I'm I don't know. I'm partly surprised sometimes uh, that organizations aren't as mature with what they understand about their data as they could be, given just how powerful understanding that data, like you say, not just I guess pulling insights out of it to apply to something in. We'll, quote, we'll put it in quotes, the real world, um, but in that data and, you know, transforming it and reapplying it and then understanding different aspects and perspectives of it, of it um, it's fascinating that there's that, I guess, disconnect between digital type interactions and what people see as these amazing online experiences and the data that is this, you know, powerfully flowing pose that never stops. Yeah. Um, and we kind of don't appreciate it so, as much. It's, it's, you, you're forcing me to think back to some, uh, some, some models I had developed conceptually about how to, how to explain this to people. Mobile communications is a great way to think about a digital world because the product you're selling is data. And from, from the moment we went into GSM, so GSM was, was 2G, before that there were various analog things, from, two, from GSM onwards, you were selling data at the top of the base station, but this is the way we used to see it at the Nokia networks. And so my, my boss at the time used to say, we have to keep that, that data flowing because that's our product. And so imagine an ice cream store not selling ice cream for 30 minutes or an hour, which is the equivalent of the sort of outage you would have in a mobile communication system. So it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't make sense. We need to think about data as our product. And that, that started to help thinking about not only just how digital the business is of mobile communications, mm. there is some infrastructure, there's a tower, there's a base station, there's a, there's a generator that's running it in some cases, or there's, there's fences and such things around your base station. But the, most of the business is actually the data, the data product. And you move it around as a voice call, you move it around as a data pack, you move it around as a file, you move it around as a fax, it was not us. Uh, but that's the product. And as of course, as we've moved on to 4G, 5G and 6G is coming, it's all about the data. It's really a data business. But when you talk to people who build concrete and steel, at least 10 years ago, they saw themselves as being in the concrete and steel business or the airline business or, or the mm. physical asset business or the coal business. Yes. And so when you say, no, you have a data business where you've got some physical assets, you're just using those physical assets more intensively than, than other businesses. That 10 years ago yes. was a difficult conversation. Now, increasingly, I mean, I'm literally just off a call talking about digital twins for the building information models in the, the, the construction environment. No one would build a building today without the digital twin of that building. So increasingly, people are getting the idea that the data and the models are actually what powers the, 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 the built world, physical world, as well as what powers the, the, the absolutely digital world. But it, it still is a spectrum between I'm all digital, I'm mostly digital, I've got a lot of physical, everybody now has an element of digital. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I wanted to touch on uh, digital twins in a minute, but I wanted to actually start with something that 
I'm a little aware of, and I believe you were you were pretty instrumental in the data gathering for the COVID pandemic. Uh, COVID was was uh, of course a terrible pandemic. The, the silver yeah. lining of COVID was that everybody suddenly got the point about data. And I joined the New South Wales government in 2015, worked through up until uh, the COVID period, doing some really big stuff around transport optimization, around foster third party and reform, around domestic and family violence and helping children at risk of significant harm. So, so some big stuff, but a whole lot of stuff that people said, you know, interesting, but I've got proper grown-up work to do. I'm, I'm not going to look at that. So a lot of the projects we did went up in the circular filing cabinet. Interesting, but we've got proper stuff to do. COVID hit, everyone suddenly said, I need to know what's going on right now, and I need to know what's happening yes. in, in my community next to me, and I need to know what the impact of the things we're doing to try and arrest COVID. You need to understand what that's doing to business, what it's doing to people with mental health challenges, what it's doing to people who are, who are elderly or have young children under their care. And so all of a sudden, the argument about data was one. All of a sudden, the argument about the need for real-time or near-real-time data was one. Whereas previously, people would say, oh, we've got the census, go back and use the census data. It's three, four, five years old. When COVID hit, if you tried offering data that was more than 24 hours old, you send out of the room and say, send out of the virtual room, say, we need stuff, which we do right now. And so there were a couple of things that we did. Uh, the first thing is that we really started to, to do the, the mixing. We used to talk about the volume, velocity, and variety of data when we talked about big data, putting air quotes around big data. We used to talk about that. Yep. All of a sudden, volume, velocity, and variety were exactly what people wanted. They, they wanted it now, and they wanted data from health, wanted data from transport. Transport wanted data from industry. Treasury wanted data from, from transport and industry. Everybody wanted everyone else's data for a deeper, richer understanding of what, what was happening, the, the show-me use case the compare me use case, the predict use cases, and the what-if scenario for me. First point, we learned a lot about governance and the, the ability to move all sorts of non-traditional data sets around at speed for all sorts of new users and all sorts of new use cases. Governance suddenly became super critical to, to, want, to make that work. But we also started to do some pretty big things around transparency. Open data has been a thing for quite some time. But the concerns around privacy being that if you release the data, most people are so concerned they just really boil all the goodness out of it. And so what you get put out is not very useful, not very interesting data. In COVID, people said, I want to know how many cases there are in my community. I want to know how many people need tested in my community. I want to know what ages those people have. So we agreed a data set that we would put out. We had great support from, it was Minister Dominello at the time. And he said, we will release data. He's the digital minister, data minister. We will release this data. And we've looked at what New Zealand and Korea and various other countries were doing. We said, okay, this is the most data we're prepared to put out. What, let's have a look at what we can do to protect that data. So we've been working on something called the personal information factor, the PIF, not a great name, but a very useful tool, which looked inside the data set and measured the level of personal information based on the information variant approach and came up with a measure for the data set of the highest risk individual, so the, the most unique individual and with the most information that could potentially be released, we said that, that, that we call that a mini-max, so it's the maximum data for the, for the smallest number of users, the most at-risk user. What is the information at risk with this data set from the original data set? And then we created data products from that original data set where we disassociated, we did some aggregation, we did some other protections, and we released those data products 
provided their PIF level dropped below a certain ratio compared to the original data set. And, so, and are, they, are they the items that were shared on the daily 3 p.m. You know, release that everyone used to just sit at home and watch because they had nothing else to do? And, and obviously also the other things like um, I remember things like the ABC had, you know, live statistics yeah. that they'd yeah. sort of, you know, visualised. And even the government did it as well. So they, they're, the, they're those sort of uh, data sets that have, or data products you mentioned that, that kind of have that, that score that, that I guess minimise that personally identifiable yeah. data. Yeah, so every day we would take the full set of data from the very beginning of what we started recording, so way back in, in uh, March of 2020. We'd look at the entire set, we'd calculate the PIP on the original data set, we calculate the PIP on the data products, the subtables, and then I, as chief data scientist, would say, yes, it's okay to go out, or no, we have to do some extra protection to let it out. And then that would create those those tables would go out so people would access the raw tables, but we also produce the, the heat maps. And over time, as the yeah. various different sorts of insights became increasingly sophisticated, or at least you know, we're responding to live information. And to begin with, the, you know, we ran the PIF tool over the, the raw data sets and the data products, and I would sit with this poor guy who was given the task of working with me, and we'd spend hours trying to work out what do we need to do to improve the data sets from a safety perspective, a risk identification, and still keep utility. Towards the end, it was an automated batch process. Right. Uh, we had 40 million rows in the, the, uh, the testing cases. We had, I don't remember the number, but millions of rows in the confirmed cases. And we, it was an automatic process. And I got it at 11 o'clock, typically uh, a few minutes later, it was okay to release. With a gauge exception, there was a new out, new, uh, new sub variety of COVID that broke out. That led to some some pretty serious re-examination of the data sets. But for most most days, unless there was a something really substantial, it was a, a, a ten minute job, and it was uh, it was really powerful because it meant that we could put our data postpartum every day with some really sensitive parameters for protecting people's information. We got three complaints over the two and a half years we released it. Uh, if you're interested, the first complaint was. Uh, Someone else took the data and was dropping pins in the middle of the data to say this is the region. And a person who had COVID who thought the pin was on their house said, You've identified me. And we, we said, No. But what we wound up doing was giving advice to the person creating those, those, those geodesic maps that please do not drop pins or imply you know, spatial granularity specificity, specificity more than what we've given you because that's not what we've said. And there was another one where someone identified themselves and said, you've identified me. We said, actually, no, you've identified yourself, um, and that's fine. Don't identify yourself to us. And then we, we also I took the June long weekend off in the first year, and there was a newspaper headline saying government stops release of data over long weekend, uh, as if there was some sort of conspiracy. And I thought, I'm just taking the weekend off. Wow. But, so uh, we, we went back, and we also agreed that if we were able to stop with more people Days coming up, we're not going to do it over Wednesday. But they're the only three complaints we had over two and a half years. That's a lot of data, and 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 obviously such an amazing job to to gather that, to present it in in that way, and to be able to continue it. And I think you mentioned automate that over time. So I mean, obviously, you know, most good things start by being very personal, hands on. But over time, the ability to automate that and to take that out of hands, but then have 
experts sitting alongside it to see whether those automations are living up to how they they were expected to to uh, to perform. Yeah, it, it was. It's always important to have a human in the loop, and even though that human touch is relatively light, it was my name that every day that said yes, go out, don't go out, which meant that whatever the circumstances were, uh, the, the the guy's name's Alex. Alex would would run the batch. And if there was some process kink, he'd have to do some manual intervention, but he'd have to run the batch, and I'd have to, to eyeball it and, and make a judgment call within the context I was operating within. But one day I was out at Lake Mungo, and there was no phone coverage, so I thought I have to get myself somewhere to, in order to download the file and do the analysis, and, and off you go. And coming out of Lake Mungo, I took a wrong turn towards this town called Carry. I was I was heading in a completely wrong direction when I'd seen that Carry was phone coverage. I'll go there. Took the wrong turn and then got got in just you talked about that three o'clock deadline, got in just before the deadline and was able to eyeball it and say, Yes, it's good. But it was in literally the middle of nowhere. Shout out to the good folks at Carry, middle of nowhere. That guy at the little rotary kiosk near the slim dusty side, that was me. And I was trying to release the interpreter data. Um, there's there's clearly a lot that would have now become something that you use on a daily basis or or a more systematic basis that have has come out of that that obviously painful but clearly profound experience um was there anything that was unexpected that has come through and was surprising if if the, if it was in the moment or if it's something that has sort of spawn something a, a little more long-term or more applicable to other other areas of, of your your practice? Yeah, so a couple of really good things did come from it. So during COVID, there's a health emergency, there's special legislation, and there's a, there's a, a motivation which is absolutely clear. There is a, a singularity of purpose, and everyone worked together in the most incredible way. People were willing to try this personal information factor tool, which we'd invented a year before, working through uh, working with good folks at Data61 and a few other folks. We'd been iterating our way through it. And at the time, it was so much better than anything else that was available that people were prepared to try it because we needed to release the data. Yeah. Subsequently, people's appetite to try these new technologies, and we've, we've kept going through the cybersecurity CRC, working with Data61, working with the Western Australian government, New South Wales government, working together, we've been developing uh, improvements on it, which are so much more sophisticated than what we were using just a couple of years ago. And now increasingly we're seeing people saying, this thing that we used to think is impossible actually demonstrated itself to be useful. Therefore, we're willing to now start to explore these new versions of it. It's a little bit like we we gave out the Model T Ford, we used the Model T Ford during COVID, and now we've got the next evolution of it, which has got seatbelts and and windscreens and and, and windscreen wipers. And once upon a time, people said, I would never not use my horse, this this smelly machine that you have, which doesn't do very much. They're now really convinced that this is a useful way to think about, in in this case, an understanding of the relative risks of use and sharing of data. And that's been really quite wonderful. Well, I mean, even just thinking on that, and I don't want to just talk about the pandemic, but just all the fascinating touch points to what you're speaking about um, and that whole Model T Ford upgrade experience has largely been a result, like you say, of people, not in this case being willing because they really had no, no choice to, other than to adopt some common approach to move forward because, you know, 
the data was so so critical. But um, but that opportunity to suck it and see has kind of had far broader and far-reaching consequences. And I and even from the point of you know the QR codes that people would use to check into places in New South Wales, for example. Um, I mean, that's a data point, right? That, that gave identity, that gave location, it gave a whole bunch of um, much more rich data. Obviously, you were hiding a bunch of that stuff when it was being reported on or, or sort of uh, abstracting that away. But uh, all of that gave people experiences that made them much more aware of data, um, where that folds into, uh, that it wasn't necessarily scary. Yeah. So that things could be adopted more broadly and, and as a consequence, become much more pervasive from now on. We, we learned a lot about uh, not just, I mentioned governance became really important, and yeah. that was governance of data, which was being moved. But the, uh, the, the, the social license is the wrong word to use with government because we don't get a choice of engagement with governments. We're not a mining company, we're government. But that, that, that agreement, that, that charter about how we're going to use data. So the QR codes in New South Wales, there was a statement, a very clear statement, when people, I think it was Western Australia, raised concerns about the data being given to police. New South Wales said, we will not give this data to police. There was also that issue around how do you encourage people not just to check in, but to check out. And that, that sense of it's a valuable engagement that you've got when you're engaging with, with your site and you're engaging with government by scanning it and scanning out. There was a whole lot of behavioural issues about that. And so incentivising people to behaviours that allowed uh, people to know and understand you know, where people had been, what movement of people were, and also the contact tracing. So constantly reconnecting to what, why is this valuable to you? Yeah. Constantly reconnecting to this is what we will do, what we won't do, led to a couple of really interesting strategies from New South Wales. In 2020, New South Wales released its uh, Smart City, Smart Places strategy. So as we increasingly use data at fine-grained temporal and spatial uh, levels, as we increasingly get that specificity around the time and space, and we're doing it in order to help improve the quality of the places where people live in New South Wales, we also commit to not using the data in such and such a way. So there was the strategy and a customer data charter released and what we've been doing is encouraging local governments to pick up that customer data charter. The second thing we released in 2020 was the AI strategy. We said, these are all the ways we're looking to use AI. These are the ways we are currently using AI. This is the, we, we will commit to building an assurance framework that assures our use of, of AI. But these are all the principles that we will bake into that assurance framework. That was uh, 2020. 2021, we released the data strategy, and that may seem a little bit of staying the horse analogy, putting the cart before the horse. The data is actually the really big game. And so we, we built our way up to, we understand data a whole lot better than we used to. Mm. And this is what we commit to. And then in 2022, we released the AI strategy, the AI assurance framework, which is bring the data, bring the algorithm, bring the use case together. And whether it's for a smart city or for health or for transport, we said, this is how we will assure use of AI. We'll look at it from what AI does. We'll look at it from an algorithmic perspective. We'll look at it from a data perspective. And rather than just give you principles, we'll give you guidance as to this is what you do when you're sitting in front of a keyboard. This is what you do when you're contemplating the data sets or contemplating the algorithms. Or this is what you do when you're contemplating use of AI or data to deliver a policy outcome. So we've been building over the last three or four years. 
and I'm pleased to say that our New South Wales AI Assurance Framework will be the basis of a nationally consistent AI assurance approach, at least our version one. Uh, the other states and territories will pick it up, and then hopefully by the end of the year, we will have collectively evolved it to be uh, uh, the next model beyond the model to be forward of the AI assurance framework. But that's, it's, we all learned so much during COVID about data sharing and use, and we've built ourselves to the point where we're actually doing the practical things of connecting the principles and strategies. Most people have principles-based strategies, but to the bits, to the algorithms of what someone sitting trying to do something with data and AI actually needs to know and understand. Yeah, and 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 we quite often miss that. And certainly at a governmental level, in a lot of cases, technology seems to be far outpacing the ability to legislate or the ability to or governments to, to keep up. So, I mean, that... That in, that in itself is seems like a win. Uh, look, I, I absolutely agree. Um, legislation has to remain principles-based. If it gets too close to the technology, it risks fossilising technology. Yes. Just going back to my fax analogy, we still have fax machines in the world because they're mentioned in legislation, they're mentioned in policy. <laughs> so we must avoid touching the technology with the regulations. But things like the assurance framework, we can update as often yes. as we need, and that's the soft policy, soft regulatory version of of the other end, and it means that we can adapt a little faster. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've so you that that's great. So you you've mentioned a few different terms, and and I want to pick up on a couple of them because I think they're they're a bit pervasive, and a, and a lot of people talk about them. But at the same time, I think it'd be great to get your perspective on what some of these are. I've got three of them, and you've you've mentioned all three, but uh, just to kind of get what are they and how do they benefit people or what's the what's the real benefit to to the broader society even? So the first one is one that you'd mentioned earlier and that's smart cities. So what what is a smart city and how can you what what benefit is that for people? Yeah. Uh, it, it always is important to start with what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And so the, the outcomes we're looking at are things like accessibility, sustainability, resilience. Uh, if you if you remember, if you can cast your mind way back to pre-COVID, uh, we had droughts and bushfires. Pre-flooding and pre-COVID, uh, there were towns that were running out of water. And that's incredible in the 21st century that a town could be not only at risk of bushfire, have air quality issues, but also potentially not have enough water to survive and start to truck things in. So when you think about resilience of a community, or whether it's a large city and you're talking about sub-communities or whether it's a regional community, thinking about resilience is something that you can actually describe in terms of a particular outcome framework. You want surety of supply, you want appropriate appropriate access to, and you want the, the, a range of other things to be in place. You want the, the appropriate levels of health services, appropriate levels of education services. So you can say that's what I want from this particular lens of, of resilience. You can talk, and also things like resilience to natural disasters. You can also talk about accessibility from the perspective of people with disability and people with mobility challenges must be able to access these things within a reasonable time frame, must be able to do these sorts of things. And you can also talk about uh, elements, you know, other elements uh, such as the um, how long it takes to get to commute between the, the most popular areas of where people live and where people work. So you can describe cities in those sort of terms and say our outcomes framework is we want this much of, of sustainability, this much of, uh, of accessibility, and this much of, of some other element. And from that, 
you suddenly got things that could indicate this. We mean this when we talk about accessibility, we mean this when we talk about sustainability. And from those indicators, you can start to build ways of collecting data to, to show those indicators, and even more importantly, ways of building data to understand the journey of, and I'm going to say, of and dot, 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 the journey of someone going to work, the journey of someone with, with a disability trying to access uh, elements of this community. And you get to understand that journey through data. You get to understand those points of friction where people are, are being moved away from the outcome that you're seeking and then think about different ways of delivering the service in such a way that you can you can help people move back towards the outcome you're looking for. So there are, the use cases are the show me use case, show me what's going on. We did a lot of that during COVID. The compare this part to that part, use case, the predict or root cause analysis, what is the main reason why it takes 45 minutes to get from point A to point B in the morning at this time of day? And then you can do the what-if scenarios. What if we did this? What if we did that? And we did elements of that all the way through COVID fairly rapidly building those models. The more uh, the, the more deliberate approach is to build models of community, build models of buildings, build models of infrastructure, and start to explore through bringing them to life through data, historic data, and real-time capture of data, and then do the show me, compare me, the predict, uh, the what-if scenario uh, modeling in the context of this is what we're committed to do with your data. This is how we said we will not use it. This is how we said we will use it. This is the level of granularity we'll get to. And you can deliver a whole lot of insights or uh, identification of problem areas and explore virtually a whole range of different possible solutions through that, that range of digital twin of city. And then the smart part is they use all of that to say, this is how we deliver on sustainability or resilience. Right. So, and that was my second, my second uh, element I wanted to talk about was the digital twin because, so what you're describing is almost a, so when you start with an outcome that you want to drive, you gather the data that applies to specific uh, strands of the outcomes that you're looking for in order to initially measure what, what is actually going on so that you can then identify how you might change that. And that's that what if uh, scenario type stuff you're talking about. But at the same time, there is the ability, and I'm assuming this is what, it, what you mean by digital twin, that you have this massive, massive data set that almost represents the reality of, in this case, a city. And by using that digital twin, you can apply experiments to it. You could do all sorts of modeling and mapping, um, both spatially, but also in other dimensionality that might apply to the data and do scenarios that could then be possibly experimented on in the real world. Is that kind of how you see a digital twin working? Very well put. Very, very well put. Uh, digital twins exist in many, many different formats. Uh, increasingly, they're being used to describe and model and interact with the built environment, so right. infrastructural buildings. So during planning, during construction, during uh, uh, during use and during maintenance, but in, but there are other other sorts of digital twins. Digital twins for the electricity system, digital twins for the water system, and interacting all of those different sorts of systems together is is the future of a digital mm. smart city or digital engineering. But at the moment, digital twins are relatively domain specific. The future, I genuinely hope, they'll be much more integrated. Well, I, I imagine that that's. A possible path of the future. I mean, I've 
I've done bits and pieces in, in areas like sustainability where um, you're largely now talking about, well, how do organizations measure their output um, in terms of carbon and the idea of scope three, which is basically the entire supply chain of what's going on upstream and who's doing what, how that applies to whatever you're doing and you know the building that's been uh, created for you to work in the the electricity that it uses while you're there but also anything that goes out of that building later on like a product or a service what is that doing in terms of that so i can imagine that yeah exactly combining those different data sets is part of the challenge of the input required in order to get to a point you can say yes this is what we do as an organization or even just as a person yeah yeah, I mean, the potential is really quite substantial. Just going back to that, that Nokia example of planning and optimizing networks, it's a bit similar and not too surprising in the lessons learned in the past of trying to apply them in current context. You can create a digital twin which, which looks kind of sort of like, then you, you let it into its digital real world, and then you can, you can train it and can adapt it based on real-time measurements. So you might model noise pollution or air pollution or air quality in such a way, and you can make short-term predictions, but then you pull in what, what it's actually, what's actually going on, and you can improve the model. And you can increase the complexity of the model when you pull in water quality and you pull in uh, the amount of traffic flowing through the environment, the number of people flowing through. So the potential is really enormous. That very, very quickly swings across to, okay, there's so much data over there now, this is something we need to be careful with. And that's where putting in place those protections about, such as the personal information factor tool, it's not rows and columns we're talking about anymore, but measuring just how much data is in there, how much personal information is in there, and setting some thresholds and saying, we're not going to go above a certain threshold yeah. for certain use cases, or we're going to apply much more control about how we use it. So increasingly, the... The, the different lessons we're learning in different parts of, of uses of data can increasingly be applied in complex situations. And if I could just stay with, with telecommunications for a moment longer, the world of 6G, which is to be employed right. 60 mobile communications, is, is targeted for 2030, which is now actually surprisingly close. Um, yep. started in 2018. That is, that is so much richness of data because of the, the, the data per cubic meter is what's being talked about, the data density, not, not just wow. in X and Y, but the, the number of bits per cubic meter is phenomenal. All these different devices talking, we are still, we're still part of the picture, which is good. Uh, all these devices talking to each other, all these sensors talking to each other, all these autonomous systems talking to each other, all these data brokers talking to each other. There's so much data in there, and because it's a, it's a radio signal, it, it creates essentially, I'm going to say, a hologram of each and every one of us. It's not quite right, but just it's good enough for the sake of can. So we are represented both in the, the real world through our interaction with the data, but also represented in the virtual world because we are objects that signals bounce off. And so we are, uh, we are so enmeshed in, and data is so enmeshed in the thinking of 6G that we really have to think about privacy, security, from so many different perspectives. And the lessons we're learning now in the world of, of smart cities and, and dealing with COVID and just doing data sharing within, within these complex environments are exactly the lessons we need to apply with real rigor as we start to think about the, the, the ongoing acceleration of use of, of data-rich technologies. Yeah, no, absolutely. Wow, the, that applies really 
neatly to what a lot of people are talking about in terms of AI and machine learning. And I'd like to understand what you see in that perspective as well, because obviously with these, I'm going to say fire hose, but I mean, we're really talking about a deluge of data that's only going to expand in multiple dimensions around what's available, what's being collected, maybe consciously or unconsciously. Um, but all of that feeding into uh, algorithms and uh, networks that are able to, I'll say learn, um, but you know, apply things to, to what it's already understood and then expand further. Um, but, but I guess to talk about AI for a second and machine learning and, and maybe what you see the difference is, but um, I mean, everyone or most people have probably heard of ChatGPT, um, but what is it in your context when, when I say AI or machine learning? What is that and how does, what are the benefits that apply there? Because I feel like people jump a lot to what they see or they perceive or they understand, but that may not actually be the reality of what it is. So, sure. So, just as COVID was really powerful to help people understand the value of data, uh, I've got to thank ChatGPT for helping people understand the value of AI. It's it's like it just fell from heaven. Before November 2022, AI did not exist. Just forget the last 70 years with the hard work that went into AI just didn't exist. And all of a sudden, video exists. I was at a, a Christmas party with my family last year. And you know what it's like at Christmas parties with your family. People talk over each other. Someone, uh, my cousin's new boyfriend said, you know, so what do you do? And I said, I, I work in AI. The room was silent. Everybody listened. And I got two whole sentences out before people switched off and went back to their, uh, their, their Christmas lunch. And I thought, wow, this must be really important, <laughs> this AI stuff. Uh, so... So in New South Wales, we have a definition of AI, which we've been working on for some time, AI strategy, AI insurance framework, which is very, very broad. It essentially includes everything around uh, algorithmic use of data, and that's an automated decision-making process through to machine learning program, through to generative AI models. We put out the AI insurance framework. We developed it through 2021, looking at all these different use cases of AI in New South Wales government. We got it endorsed by New South Wales Cabinet, uh, December 2021, and we've been using it, not in anger, not the opposite, we've been using it constructively yeah. uh, for all of 2022. Then ChatGPT came out, and all of a sudden people said, oh my goodness, the sky is falling, what guidance do we have, what systems do we have? And we said, uh, we've got the insurance framework, we've got privacy policies, we've got cybersecurity. So irrespective of all of that, it suddenly entered mainstream conversation yes. with lots of folks. And it suddenly people looked at our insurance framework and said, oh, we need more than this. So uh, from my perspective, uh, uh, AI is something, let's say pre-November 2022, AI is something which amplifies a process, it accelerates a process, and it adapts in its own way. So it's different from, from all other technologies in that Digital and data can amplify and accelerate uh, if you use it in operational systems. It's the adaptation part which is really unique about AI. And so as you design it versus as it's deployed versus as it operates, there's the things you really need to, to look at differently compared to using a calculator or compared to using a stapler or compared to using a hole punch. 
it adapts over time. Pole punches and staplers don't adapt, not, not that much anyway. Yes. So our assurance framework tried to address that, but also tried to address that amplification acceleration. If you've got a wrinkle in your system when you amplify and accelerate it, it's not one person per day has a, has a problem with, with the service delivery. It's potentially hundreds of people yeah. and, and potentially at much greater volume. With ChatGPT, with the generative models and large language models, it, it now also generates, it translates, and it, it interpolates, which means you know, hallucinations and it means that you know, it generates data products, which are not alerts, alarms, decisions, or actions. It, it generates data products, which are songs or images or speeches or um, reports for your manager. Yeah. And so these data products need to be thought about from the protections perspective really quite differently. So for me, the big difference is AI is something which does that amplification, acceleration, adaptation, now does the generate, translate, interpolate. And it, it does things in a way which as it learns or adapts, it's something that we, we cannot, we can no longer consider any set and forget, deploy and forget scenario. AI is a technology which is still data-driven. It still creates data products. Those data products have a much broader range of application and, and, and style, but we can still think about it in the same way and we can still think about the what we're doing, the algorithmic parts and whether or not we can see the algorithmic parts and then the data parts. And I still think at the end of the day, AI, at least to what I've seen so far, is a use of data. If data is... if Data is like the new electricity, and AI is like all the stuff we can do with electricity, the heating, yep. the ventilation, the air conditioning. It's really myriad applications. Data is everywhere, just like electricity is everywhere. AI will be everywhere, just like all the things we do with electricity everywhere. And we can build safe assurance frameworks and standards around appropriate use of AI, just like we do with electricity. Right. So I was going to ask, should people be scared of it? But I, I think I'm going to turn that into. Do you feel that what you've created in terms of the the assurance framework does that do you feel that kind of minimizes the the risks involved in you know a lot of people talking about AIs you know taking over the world eating the world all of those sorts of doomsday type type uh, scenarios is is the path to a more successful outcome where we put guardrails in place in order to allow for the expansion of the data in a positive light, but finding ways to restrict it in, in where, it, where it can possibly harm us? We, we've learned a lot. If I can just stay with electricity analogy for a moment. We've learned a lot about the use of electricity over the 100 or so years Absolutely. that we've used it. We know not to bring more than 240 volts into the home. We know that if we do bring 200 volts electricity, we, we, all the wires have to be wrapped in insulation. And we know we have standards for wiring the house, which yes. which bring about safety, and you hire professionals to, to, to wire up your house or to change things in your house. But yeah, we all use electricity, and we all have that minimum viable understanding of how to use electricity. Don't put your fork in the toaster. Don't put your tongue in the light socket. And we know that from a very early age. But if you did put your, your fork in the toaster, you'll, you'll get a painful shock, but it's yes. really unlikely to kill you because of the standards and because of the professional implementation stuff. So with AI, we can do the same thing. Mm. Electricity behaves in a certain way. And whilst most people don't understand it, we understand it functionally to, to know that just, we can all make toast and we can all put a light on or even change a light bulb. And we all know that we have to get the electrician if we go to the next level of detail. We can do the same thing with AI and with use of data. And again, 
AI is just a use of data. So it's really, it's the data issue that we need to think about as opposed to the, the like or the toaster equivalent of AI. There needs to be safety standards related to those. There needs to be appropriate use of minimal viable understanding. We, we need a few of those. Do not use this AI in, in the bathtub. Uh, sorts of warnings that we have on hair dryers. We will, we will need a few of those. Right, right. But if assurance frameworks and standards and that development of minimum viable understanding will help us with the current generation of AI and the next few generations of AI, at least until it does something astoundingly different to, yes. uh, to, to what the work provided, and this is the big proviso, you're a good person wanting to do good things or you're an average Joe and you just kind of get on the wire. Not if you're a bad actor trying to do a bad thing. And that's, yeah. that's the really big difference. So if we're trying to do the right thing, we're just trying to get on with our lives. Standards will help. Insurance frameworks will help. And a little bit of common sense will help. If you're a bad actor trying to do a bad thing, then we've seen, for example, worm GPT come out and some of these other nasty GPTs, GPT baddies, where you can now strip off all the diagrams and use it for malicious purposes. Yes. Uh, I, I'm, the sophistication of, of uh, phishing email attacks has gone up pretty dramatically. And if it wasn't for phishing email attacks, I'd feel unloved in terms of the amount of email I get these days. And, you know, similarly with spam phone calls. So there are some, increasingly there are AI solutions we can use to try and help us protect ourselves, help organizations protect themselves and us from malicious uses of AI. But there are some really worrying ones out there, such as, could we have autonomous weapons? Uh, mm. Those are the sorts of things that need to be banned at an international level, and then people need to adhere to those bans. If you still wanted to build one, you could, but you know you'd be going against world consensus, but that doesn't stop. It doesn't stop people mm. who individually want to be bad or nations who want to be bad or people who want to do things in COVID. So, so I'm in two minds about um, AI. I, I, I don't think... It's as devastating uh, a threat to humanity as nuclear weapons. Mm. Nuclear weapons are, are literally devastating, and mutually assured destru destruction framework, the MAD framework, mutually assured destruction, is not a framework I think that makes sense for such powerful weapons. Would AI, would I consider AI in the same way? No, I would not. Uh, they, there is the potential to do some really bad things, but there's also potential to do some really powerful things to counter the AI. And, you know, I, there was once a comedy program I saw where someone drove over themselves in their own car. Uh, I don't think we should allow AI to drive over us if we stay behind the steering wheel. Uh, great point. Great point. Um, you've spoken a bit about things like standardization and governance. You know, do you see that those items, I mean, on one level, they're, they're hygiene points, right? Like, I, I think, you know, in terms of standardized data, if you don't know, if, if data sets can't talk to one another or they, they, they're largely incompatible, it's, it's hard for you to leverage them in, in sort of a, a scaled use, seemingly. Um, but, and also governance. How, what's, what's quality data? How can I trust what the data is? Because... I mean, as we're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and those types of algorithms, they're all based on, you know, huge data sets that have, you know, they've been grown and built over time. And if you can't trust the underlying data, then... So, I mean, standardization and governance seem to be things that 
lead to great outcomes in the future. But uh, so I, I, I have much much more hope than that. Uh, and my hope, <laughs> my hope, my hopeful analogy is, is a little bit like petrol. So I'm going to mix up as many analogies as possible. I, lo- I love all uh, the analogies. They keep them coming. Oh, They're great. Okay, good, good. Uh, so if you've got a high performance car, you know you need to put 98 octane fuel in. Uh, you put 95 in, you don't get great performance. 91, it'll it'll really suffer. Diesel, right out of the question. We, we have those different stands of fuel and they're commodities, literally commodities now, despite what everyone tells us, one brand looks pretty similar to the other one. Uh, so we can do the same thing with data. Uh, there is a batch of data quality standards which are about to be adopted uh, from the world of this. There's ISO, who builds standards for everything from smart cities to how to make a cup of tea. It really is a standard for making a cup of tea. It's, it's milk thirsty, in case you're interested. Uh, they partnered with IEC, who make standards for motors and for lighting and such things. And they have a joint technical committee called, wait for it, JTC1. That's been around for 30 years. And JTC1 does all the cool standards. So they do AI and digital things and integrated things and data okay. quality. They are the folks who gave us SQL. Uh, if you've ever written a line of SQL, yeah. that's yeah. Um, J- JTC1 SC32 Working Group 2. Uh, there's another group, which is Working Group 6, that I lead, which is on data usage. And so for five years, we've been bogging away this to try and create the principles which connect to the AI standards, which connect to the digital twin standards, which connect to the data quality standards, and collectively we say, this is how to think about it. And that may sound complicated. It is. But it's the equivalent of building a data refinery. So you don't get 98 or 95 grade without really serious investment. And if your uh, if, if your car could still take 1910 or 1920s or 1930s petrol, that's great. But most cars would really struggle with it. We've got a lot of 1910s equivalent data, yes. But we can we now have a better chance of assessing that data quality and saying, you know what, right. it's not even 91. This should only be used for museum quality purposes. Uh, and going forward, this is how we'll improve the quality. But AI can also help there. We did a really great project some time ago with New South Wales government, the Treasury where we looked at the procurement spend in New South Wales and all of the receipts from New South Wales government, you know, 40 odd billion dollars worth of receipts, go through uh, a categorization engine, which was a million rules, and then they get categorized based on how they fall out of those million rules. We built two different AI that competed with each other and could do months of work in a few hours wow. and actually did it far more accurately. Mm. And so, to do that in three hours, we can actually go back on every transaction that, that, we, that we've got in electronic format at yeah. least the last 20 or 30 years, and we can improve the data quality and say, keep the museum one, we'll, we'll keep that for historical purposes. But now we've got a better you know, categorization of that data, and you can now do things with it in your, your results and so on. Similarly, with, uh, with data from this domain and that domain, if we can put the better data on it, that allows yes. interoperability or tells you when you cannot allow it to interoperate, then potentially, again, we could do some cool things. Mm. Yeah, wow. Okay. So the, uh, the standardization and governance is, is in good hands with, with, uh, with those working groups. That, that, that's really cool. Yeah, and I'm pleased to say that Australia's been really active in a lot of these JTC1 standards, in particular digital tweet, Internet of Things, uh, AI and data usage. Uh, and it, it's because it matters. And Australia's in general been really innovative in the data and digital space. So helping codify what we've learned from the standards and therefore not only ensure that they work for us, but we're actually ahead of the curve, is, I think is a real opportunity for Australia. Mm. 
So to kind of pull it back to some more, more general questions, what does the next five years look like from a data perspective in, in your mind? And, and do you feel like, and, you know, from your perspective and what you see, are there any perhaps more broadly unexpected thoughts in that time frame that, that uh, might be there for you? Yeah, so uh, it, it's, it, we, we are living in interesting data and digital times. I, I think AI will continue to surprise us. I think we'll continually be challenged with the areas that we believe belong to us as human beings exclusively. And increasingly, we'll see I mean, recent uh, tests again and again and again using social, social media platforms with people asking questions about health, AI answering versus doctor answering. AI comes out with greater, more accurate, more complete, and more empathetic. And you think, wow, that used to belong to us in that particular constrained environment that AI is doing a better job. So it's it's not the same as a person-to-person interaction, but in that constrained, low-context environment, it's doing a better job. I think we'll continue to be surprised by what AI can do, and that's partly because we're going to feed it more and more data, not just the stuff off the internet, but things inside our own companies, things inside our own organisations, so it can get a lot better at helping us do what we do. Second thing is, I think, I really, 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 really hope that we address some of the cultural issues around data sharing use. When I first joined, broad reasons people don't share data, they're unwilling, they're unable, they're not allowed. The allowed part is increasingly becoming clear. You are allowed under more and more circumstances to share data and use data. Uh, the, the unable speaks to those tools and frameworks, the standards, the, the data sharing patterns, the data sharing recipes. The unwilling remains. And I've just seen, again, post-COVID, I mean, during COVID, everyone understood the value of data. Post-COVID, there's been a somewhat of a drift back to my data. It, it helps me do my job. I don't see the reason why I should share my data with you. So I hope we address some of those cultural challenges around the unwilling. Partly by saying this is a way to share and use data safely. Partly by saying not only are you allowed to do it, you're actually required to do it. Again, thinking of government. But I, I really hope we address some of those cultural issues. And the more of the tools and recipes and resources we put in place, the easier it will be for people to do it. But there's still cultural aspects about that. So I hope we move a long way forward. I hope also that we stop building big data sets which ultimately become honeypots and get hacked for malicious reasons. I hope we stop that. I hope we start really thinking about data virtualization, data fabrics, where the data connects virtually when you send your analysis out and it goes out and does its thing and comes back and gives you an answer or you work with the metadata. To do that, we need to, to genuinely think differently about data and we need to think differently about things like identity. There's too many times you are in the data set, you credential yourself against the data set, you get access. It's a whole lot easier to think about a world where each of us carries around their own little wallet of data. And if I want to know if you're over 18 or illegally able to enter these premises or have a responsible service for alcohol license, I don't see your license, I don't see your date of birth, I just ask the question, the answer comes back yes or no, and then off, off, off we go with that next level of, uh, of access. So I really, if it's five years, that's what I want to see. Uh, in 50 years, I think data sharing and use will be sorted. Great. I'll be out of a job. That's fantastic. Uh, and, and, and I'm sure that the AI will be taking care of us in our old age. <laughs> well, I mean, just on that, there's 
obviously a lot of fear around the jobs that get minimized with the exposure of data and you know algorithms that that can very easily do elements of work like you say instead of in months in hours but also you're also speaking to the wide open field of possibility about the need for people to walk alongside algorithms or to work in ways with data that may not even exist or even we might not even be conscious of do you see in that same sort of time frame a bit of an explosion in what's required in order to do this because i i feel like every time there is something that comes along to minimize one technology the opportunity opens up for something else yeah uh, it, it is going to be disruptive i don't there's mm. any two ways about it it's amazing i was had on the weekend, I spent a little bit of time with a couple of friends. We, we went and looked at the stars and did stuff like that. But of course, AI came up in conversation. We had a judge, we had an astronomer, we had myself, mm. of course, we were talking about AI. And so we showed the judge, uh, ChatGPT, and he asked some questions and he gave answers. And he said, Wow, this is as good as an intern. It's not completely mm. right, it's not really tight, but it's pretty good. Yep. And then after a little while prompting, helping him do the prompting, he said, this is really, really good. So just an example of a part of the world which is typically reluctant to change uh, and tends to do things more traditional way. I think we're going to see a whole lot of, in, in the world of automation, we used to talk about dull, dirty, and dangerous. In the world of AI, we talk about re- repetitive or low-complexity decision-making yep. or where you've got so much data or information that it's difficult to make sense of it. So I think increasingly we're going to see a whole lot of repetitive, complex or uh, low low complexity decision areas start to be eroded. And it will be really important for people to to, to really embrace use of these tools. Yes. They're not going to go away. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, so it's important to embrace use of these tools. And those people who are going to be most impacted other people who really need to think most about what else could they do or how could they rise with the tide of, of incoming AI? How would they use these results? How would they use these yeah. data products? And I think that's that's really important. I was talking to a colleague today in New South Wales government who's just done a couple of weeks training course on AI understanding and awareness, essentially to get herself ready for what's coming next and it's going to impact her and it's going to impact her team. So uh, I think that's really important. The flip side is, most people I speak to are really excited about the use of AI because it's the repetitive tasks. They don't want to do them. These are top one jobs. The you know, synthesizing information, that first draft, that's not that's not exciting. Reviewing the first draft, tightening it up and then getting more specific about it, that's that's a greater value add. Whereas the what's called the deviling bit where you go out and dig around and find stuff. That's not so much fun. And it's the, the low complexity decision making, I think, is also going to be interesting. So I think we will see that increase over time. And it's important to understand that, that context matters. In, in a conversation between two human beings, there's so many degrees of freedom in that context. It's not only our, our spatial dimensions, our X, Y's, and Z's, but it's also what we carry, our, 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 the way we interact. I say something, you say something, we interact. So there's so many degrees of freedom in context. AI can do better than we do if you reduce all those levels of context to just one or two or three, I think we'll start to see that open up and increasingly AI will be better and better with more degrees of freedom of context. But still, 
and again, this is this is how I'm hoping to not drive over myself with my own car. Still, I think if we're behind the steering wheel in the seat with the seatbelt on, yes. uh, it, it's it's much much harder to run over yourself. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I guess to to go along with your analogy of the not driving over your yourself in the car, and and this is kind of my my final question is, what's the one skill that you've relied on in your life to make change? Because I mean, all of this leads back to, for me, the future, what's coming, how do we meet it? Um, and, I, and I'll often, well, I, I always ask the question. So, you know, is there an experience that you, you're able to share where you can demonstrate that skill as well? And you know, what, what is it that uh, helps you meet change? Uh, so that's, that's a great question. And thank you for giving me a little bit of time to think about it. <laughs> Uh, I, I used to be an engineer, and then I was a fax engineer for a while, very short period of time. And then I was a telecommunications guy, and then I was a mobile guy, and then I was a science guy, and then I was a data science guy. Uh, so I think the ability and willingness to reinvent, I think, is really critical. Uh, the, the, the common thread is uh, the curiosity and, and a desire to learn and a willingness to explore. And I think they are, some of those are innate, some of them are, I think, they're necessary parts of the toolkit as we go forward. Uh, if anyone, you know, all the data scientists in the world today, if they are still data scientists, if they're all still data scientists in, in 10 years' time, I would be astounded. Most will have changed jobs, most will have briefly been prompt engineers until we realize that that's not a thing, yeah. and not become <laughs> the, next, the next thing after that. But we all have to change. Uh, we are living in a time of accelerating change. AI is an accelerant. And I often say to people, look around now, take stock now, because today is the good old days. We will never see change as slow as this again. Mm -hmm. We will never, ever see things moving as slowly as this. So today is the day when you know, we can look back on today and say, oh, music made sense, uh, children respected their parents, politicians were honest in the good old days because today is the good old days. So, so take note of it now, take note of the songs now, take note of the politicians. So as we accelerate forward, we're going to have to be constantly uh, reinventing ourselves. And that doesn't need to be an exhaustive or even frightening process. It's something that we've been extraordinarily good at in the entire history of humankind. So every time we encounter a new contextual situation, we, we, we adapt. It just so happens that the new contextual situations now are driven by, by data and technology as opposed to grass fires or, or big game or things that were out chasing us on the savannah all those years ago. So being willing to learn, being willing to adapt, being willing to, uh, to experiment, uh, accepting that someone's moved your cheese following that, that great um, book from all those years ago. And it's okay to change. I, I think that's the, 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 the part of the toolkit for the future. Yeah. I really appreciate that. It's um, great to speak to you as always. And uh, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Ray. That was a lot of fun. Good to talk to you. My thanks to Ian Opperman. I've included a number of references in the show notes. Walt Disney said, times and conditions change so rapidly that we must keep our aim constantly focused on the future. Our future sits on top of the data we are creating, storing and using today. 
but are we focused on the future? The Changeable is created and produced by me, Ray Pucky. Our theme music is Night Sky by Oh Boy. Please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. I'd especially love your feedback and input, which you can share with me at thechangeable.co. Until next time, thanks for listening.